Let's give attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Revelation chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps, harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again, and we give you thanks for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us, that we can have it today. It's been read in a way that we understand, but we ask now, O oh God, that you would grant us spiritual understanding, that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes so that we may behold wondrous things that you would teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Would you make us more like Jesus? Would you give us a heart like his? Father, I pray that your people would be blessed and encouraged this day. And Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant. Oh God, would you protect me from error? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You alone are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you are familiar with the book of Exodus and how it tells of God bringing his people up out of Egypt and delivering them and setting them about on their journey to the promised land. And Perhaps you're familiar with Exodus chapter 14. Uh, in Exodus 14, we find the people of Israel. This is just after they have been delivered from Egypt, and they're going out of Egypt, but they're not going the way that they would have expected or anyone else would have expected that they would go. You see, the Lord did not take them on the easiest route. The easiest route would have been to go through the land of the Philistines because it was nearer but rather he led them around by way of the wilderness. And you can look in Exodus 13, 17, and it tells us that God did this so that the people 
right? He says that the people change their minds when they see war and then return to Egypt. So now, in chapter 14, they've traveled a good distance and the Lord once again changes their travel itinerary. Chapter 14, verse 1, God tells the people of Israel to turn back, to U-turn, to turn back toward Egypt. What? To turn back? I mean, put yourself in the sandals of the Israelites. What would that have sounded like to you? Turn around. Turn back. How would you have taken that command? Probably the same way they did. In chapter 14, verse 10 and following, we see that eventually the people lifted up their eyes and what did they see? They saw the Egyptians coming right at them and they were greatly afraid and they cried out to Moses. This is what they said. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Moses, didn't we tell you to leave us alone? Wouldn't it have been better for us to stay in Egypt and serve the Egyptians than to die right here in the wilderness? But Moses isn't phased by their cries. Listen to what Moses says to them. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. He goes on and says, For the Egyptians you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Shut up and watch. And what did God do? Oh, wow. God parted the Red Sea, and the people of Israel passed over on dry land. And then what did they see when they looked back? They saw the Egyptian army following them and God letting the sea wash them away, wiping them out right then and there. Now how did they respond? What was their response? Exodus chapter 15, I won't read it all. They responded with a song. They sang joyfully and it began this way i will sing to the lord for he has triumphed gloriously i will sing to the lord for he has triumphed gloriously this morning as we move into chapter 15 of revelation we also find ourselves turning back turning around for another glimpse a glimpse of this time period, that time between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his second coming on the last day. And as we turn back to the events that are recorded before us in chapters 15 and 16, we're gonna find ourselves sharing two things in common with the people of Israel from the book of Exodus. First, we're gonna see the Lord deliver us from our enemy in a mighty way. Chapter 16, that's what we get to see. God's deliverance 
from our enemy in a mighty way. And second, we're going to join with all the redeemed in singing again of God's glorious triumph, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So let's begin our study of Revelation 15 this morning by considering first the heavenly vision. If you're taking notes, that is our first point, the heavenly vision. Chapters 15 and 16 comprise the fifth of seven parallel cycles that we see in the book of Revelation. Each cycle, as you'll remember, gives us a picture of that history between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. And notably, at the beginning of each of these cycles, there's a heavenly vision. That's how we know that they're cycles and that they run together. In chapter one, what did we see? A vision of the glorified, reigning Christ, ministering in heaven among the lampstands of his church. And then in chapter four, we were catapulted into the very throne room of God and we saw the majesty surrounding him there. In chapter seven, we again returned to the throne room and we saw the multitude of saints in their heavenly worship before God and before the Lamb. And then in chapter 12, excuse me, we saw a glimpse of this heavenly battle that took place. This battle between God and his angels and against the dragon and his beasts. Now in chapter 15, we see those words again. Another heavenly sign, a heavenly vision And how does John describe this one? Great and amazing. Great and amazing. Well, what does he see? What does he see? It's there in your text, first in verse one. He sees seven angels with seven plagues. He goes on in verses five and six to describe these angels. He says that they're clothed in pure, bright linen and they have golden sashes around their chests. You may remember back in chapter 1, verse 13, you could even look there, John saw Jesus also clothed in a long robe, and he also had a golden sash around his chest. And so the similarity here works to demonstrate that these angels represent Christ. These angels come to carry out what was first revealed when Christ opened those seven seals of the great scroll that was in the hand of the Father back in chapter 6. And notice that as these angels come out of the heavenly temple, the heavenly sanctuary, John now sees one of those four creatures. Remember those four living creatures that surround the throne? He sees one of these creatures giving to each one of them a golden bowl. And how's this bowl described? Look at verse 7. It's a bowl full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Oh, who can carry such a bowl? I don't know how many times I drip stuff out of a bowl when I try to carry it around the house, right? That's not a real big deal if I get a little bit of soup on the floor, but they're carrying bowls full of the wrath of God. Imagine. Now, I want you to know there's a connection. There's a connection between the plagues and the bowls of wrath, and it'll become clear in chapter 16 These plagues are the manifestation of God's wrath, right? This is God's wrath poured out as plagues. 
just as the plagues against Pharaoh in Egypt were. There's a connection here. The plague is God's wrath going out against them. So you see these angels are a lot like the seven angels who blew the trumpets of coming judgment in chapters 8 through 11. Do you remember those seven angels who blew the trumpets? These angels are much the same, if not, and we don't know, the same. But these angels are here and they are waiting, ready to do just as they are commanded to do, following God's will. But there is one difference. There is one difference. Trumpets, if you remember, were warnings of judgment. The trumpets warned of judgment to come, at least until the seventh trumpet, right? When Christ came in glory. These are not warnings. Look at what it says. The full and finished wrath of God. For the wrath of God is finished. Next, John describes other things that he sees. He sees a sea of glass mingled with fire. This isn't the first time we've seen language of sea of glass. Back in chapter 4, verse 6, we see this sea of glass, the crystal sea there before God's throne. Throughout scriptures, water is often a symbol of chaos and judgment. Remember, one of the beasts came up out of the water. You can also think of Noah, the waters of judgment in the time of Noah. You can also think of Egypt. They passed through the waters, but the waters were used as judgment upon the people, upon the Egyptians. A glass sea is representative then of God's sovereign majesty over judgment. A still, calm Lake shows God's ability to rule over the chaos and to deliver from judgment. Again, you can think of the Israelites passing through the Red Sea or passing the Jordan or maybe even the account of Jesus as he's there on the stormy sea. And the disciples are afraid. And what does he say? Be still. And what happens? Just calm. It was calm. The sovereign majesty over judgment is what's seen here. And it's intensified, as John mentions, that it's mingled with fire. Think about fire. How does the Bible sometimes talk about fire? It's judgment, right? But it's also purifying. Right? Fire is used by a refiner to purify metal. And so likewise, it is by the fire of trials and tribulation that God purifies his people. I can't say it enough. There is no easy escapism in the book of Revelation. Though we may stand by the sea of glass, though we may be there, there's no promise that we will not suffer along the way. God's sovereign judgment has purposes. It, of course, is used to judge people, but it's also used to purify us, to purify his people. Going even further, John mentions in verse 8 that the heavenly sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. 
Back in Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, we're told that God's glory visibly fell on the tent of meeting in a cloud of smoke and glory so that Moses wasn't able to enter it. And this recurred in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11 during the time of Solomon when God's visible glory filled the temple at its dedication. So as we read here that God's glory fills the sanctuary, notice no one could enter it. No one could enter it until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This signifies to us that nothing can stop God's final wrath. Remember, as we go through these cycles, it intensifies. Now we're seeing the intensity toward the end of days. Nothing can hold back God's final wrath when it comes. When God's final wrath is poured out on the last day, there will be no more mediation left. There will be no more until all is brought under the plagues that he gives. And lastly, in verse two, John sees in his heavenly vision those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. I often get asked, Pastor, will there be instruments in heaven? There's your answer. They're standing there with harps in their hands. We've seen this group before. We've seen this group described as the 144,000. We've seen this group described as the multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. These are those who have not bowed the knee to the dragon, to Satan, or they haven't worshiped the beast. Here we see these having been delivered. They've been brought safely through to the other side. And now they're standing beside the sea of glass and they're ready to worship. They are ready to worship. Like the people of Israel, whom God brought safely through the Red Sea, they're ready to sing a song of victory in anticipation of God's final and full judgment and victory. And that brings us to the second thing I want us to consider from our passage this morning. We've seen the heavenly vision. Now I want us to look at the victory song. You can see this victory song in verses three and four. I do want to read it again for you. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's called the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. And I just want to thank you, Abram, for singing it for us and special music. If you didn't catch on, that's what Abram was singing were those words. This is a song of victory and a song of triumph. Notice that it begins with words that echo, that repeat. Words that echo John's description of the heavenly vision. John called his vision great and mighty. And so now they say great 
and mighty or great and amazing. God's works themselves are great and his works are amazing. And notice what God is called here. He's called Shaddai, right? He's called the Almighty. God was called that throughout all the scriptures. Jesus himself was even revealed as El Shaddai, as God Almighty, earlier in the book of Revelation. What this means is that God is sufficiently powerful enough to do all that he's promised to do. The song goes on and it says that his ways, all that he does, they're, they're magnified in this song. They're magnified as being just and true. Why are they just and true? Because God is holy and righteous. And because God is holy and righteous, likewise, everything he does is holy and righteous. And notice that his holy and righteous works extend to every corner of the earth. For he alone is the king, the king of the nations, the king of ages, the king of kings, the king of glory. So in light of that power, that sufficient power, and with the experience of deliverance, the song continues with the question, who will not fear and glorify your name? That's a question, isn't it? That's a, that's a great question. Maybe you'll answer and say, many. There are many. Many do not fear and glorify God's name. Don't you live in light of this truth every day? I do. I live in light of this every day everywhere I look. Everywhere I go, I find people who don't fear God, who don't give God the glory. The Israelites lived that way. The Christians in John's day lived that way. Yet this song is singing of a coming day, a coming day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is king to the glory of God the Father, of a day when final victory is gonna be revealed and experienced, a day where everything that has breath will most certainly fear God and give him all the glory. That day's coming. In verse four, the song goes on and asserts God is holy. There's no other like him. And as the holy king of the nations, he is indeed gathering his elect from all the nations of the earth. He's revealing his righteous acts to all the peoples of the earth. And one day, these people will come and worship him. Is that not what we saw in chapter 7? Remember that scene around the throne? People from every tribe and tongue and nation giving glory to God, praising him for his wondrous deeds. That's what heaven will be like. A vast array of beautiful tapestry of unified diversity, a glorious and beautiful concert of heavenly praise from all peoples. Well, just as Israel ascribed its victory to God in Exodus 15, so here the heavenly church that John sees loudly proclaiming that God is the one who has granted victory for his people. That's why it's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. God has delivered his people, give them victory in this song, this coming righteous judgment of God against the enemies of Christ and his church are celebrated. Judgment is celebrated. 
It's a song of deliverance. It's a song of the conqueror. It's a song of those who have been redeemed. So I want to stop for a moment and ask you a question. Is that uncomfortable to you? Do you find singing a song of victory, a song of celebrating the coming triumphant judgment of God, a song delighting in the coming destruction of the wicked, do you find singing such a song uncomfortable? Do you perhaps feel like that pretentious baseball player who arrogantly flips his bat after hitting a home run? You maybe feel like that showboating football player who spikes the ball right at the feet of the person who couldn't catch him to tackle him. Or maybe you might feel a bit like that bratty little kid on the playground, you know, the one who sings, nah, 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 every time she wins a game. I mean, isn't this at all just a little uncomfortable? Well, I'm going to argue that to some degree it should be uncomfortable. It should feel uncomfortable to us all. So I want to take a moment by way of application to address this. And it'll be our third and final consideration from our text this morning. It's the earthly tension. The earthly tension. As long as we live on this earth, as long as we have breath in our lungs, as long as it takes before Christ returns in glory, we're gonna live with this tension. I think it's an appropriate tension. We know that, yes, there's coming a day. It's gonna be a day of victory. It's gonna be a day where we sing of God's ultimate triumph. But you know, in part, we sing of God's triumph even now. Israel sang of deliverance, right? Deliverance from Egypt. We sing of deliverance from sin, through Jesus Christ. I mean, did we not just sing songs saturated with this language? Did we not just say, to this I hold, my sin has been defeated? Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. But when you think of the full and final And if you haven't read it yet, the furious wrath of God that is coming upon our world, how often does that make you sing? Does coming judgment inspire you to sing praises? How many of our songs are full of that type of language? How many songs include references to God as judge? References to God's judgment even references to God's coming wrath. Well, some do, and we sing some of them, but not many. And surely if you listen to what's called Christian radio these days, you will hear none. You will hear none. You see, that's the tension that we live in on this earth. As God's people, we should sing, and we will sing from a heart in which a longing for justice will one day be satisfied. But even more so, I want you to pay close attention to what I say, we should sing 
And we will indeed sing because God's longing for justice, God's longing for justice will be satisfied. Do you see the difference? We should sing, and we will indeed sing, from a heart which is longing for justice to be satisfied. But even more so, we should sing, and we will indeed sing, because God's longing for justice, his eternal decree will be fulfilled. You see, our worship is not driven solely by what will be done, but it's driven more so by the one who does it. I mean, isn't that the theme of the song in verses three and four? Isn't that the theme? It's certainly about what God does. Isn't it just as much about who God is? And can't we rightly say that it's even more about who God is? Because what God does flows from who he is. It's inseparable. So friends, whatever we may feel about God's judgments, we can never say that God will not be glorified in these judgments. We can never say that God is not fair, and we cannot say that all creation is not better off with evil having been stopped in its tracks. You see, God is indeed worthy to be praised, and we should be longing for the day when we sing this song. We should be longing for the day when we sing this song in its fulfillment there in heaven. But in the meantime, we're going to feel attention. We're going to feel attention in our souls. And here's why the main reason because you and I know that we deserve God's judgment too. You and I know that we deserve it too. It's really hard to rejoice and others getting what we ourselves deserve. It's really hard. So while we sing of God's grace, while we sing of God's mercy, while we sing of God's blessings to us through Christ, we also give glory and praise and honor to the God whose judgments are great and amazing and just and true and holy as well. And although we won't and we can't always properly discern his judgments as they are unfolded here on this earth, we can know that his judgment is here and it will indeed come in its fullness. And there will be no mistake that it is God's judgment. And when we sing to him here on this earth, we sing to him with longing in our hearts. We sing to him knowing that we deserve that judgment, but we've been set free. And so we long for him. We say, how long, O oh Lord? Come, Lord Jesus, come. These are those same cries that you see throughout the book of Revelation. And so we see that we've turned back. We've turned back for another glimpse, another picture of the period of time between the ascension and the second coming. And maybe you're just like, I've had it. This is enough. When's our next break, Pastor Dan? It's coming. We'll finish 16 at the end of the month and we'll take a break. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. But here's what I want to leave you with this morning before we go to the table. Remember what 
God inspired Moses to say to Israel. Do you remember? Because he says it to you today. Fear not. Stand firm. Behold the salvation of the Lord. Behold God's salvation. Praise God. Praise God because he has chosen us for such a salvation. Amen and amen.